Those who are familiar with Jewish jokes know, uh, un undoubtedly are familiar with this joke. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's a classic. Sometimes, you know, you uh, like to hear your favorite band play a song that you've already heard before. In fact, that's the whole excitement as you hear it live, you know, if you're into like the jam band type genre. So we all know this joke. Um, and if you're watching this online, you don't know this joke. This is like one of the top 50, I'd say, Jewish jokes. So it's uh, 1935 in Berlin, and there are two Jews sitting on a train. And they're both reading the paper. One is reading the Yiddish newspaper, and the other is reading the Nazi party paper, Der Sturme. So finally, the one who's reading the Yiddish paper looks up and he says to the other Jewish fellow, uh, my dear sir, what in the world are you doing reading Der Sturme, reading this Nazi rag? Are you uh, perhaps a masochist? Or worse, are you a self-hating Jew? <clears throat> so he says, let me explain to you, uh, my, my friend. I see you're reading the Yiddish paper, and I too used to read the Yiddish paper. And every time I would open the Yiddish paper, I would read about the anti-Semitic laws that are being passed here in Germany and that it's not safe and we need to leave. And I would read about the assimilation of Jews in America. And I would read about riots and pogroms in the Holy Land. And it was just depressing. So I started reading Der Sturmer. You, you open that. And what does it say? The Jews run the media. The Jews run the government. We're about to take over the whole world. It's very uplifting. So... That's why. And in case you're watching online, you're saying nobody laughed at that. That's, that's right. Nobody laughed. That's because this is a classic joke. And we all knew what the punchline was. Okay. Why am I telling you this joke? I want to talk about uh, Kanye. He wants to be called Ye, so I'll call him Ye. Kanye West, Ye. And, and Kyrie Irving who both uh, made a little bit of notoriety for themselves recently by uh, being anti-Semitic, although they say they can't be anti-Semitic, whatever, we, we, we could, that's a, another discussion. Although I invite them, if they do identify as Jews, they could come study Torah with me. I'm available if they want to. We can start with Bereshis in the beginning, and we can go through, I'll teach them Hebrew, and we could go through and good study, no problem. At any rate, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about this anti-Semitism that's going on. And I also want to um, basically contextualize it and ask, like, should we care? I mean, anti-Semitism is not a new thing. Um, should it bother us? And I'm going to answer the question right up front, because to answer it, I mean, it's a yes or no question. Should it bother us? It's either yes or it's no. Um, so I'll answer the question right up front. But to explain how I arrived at that answer uh, is going to take the whole class tonight. The answer is, yeah, we should care. We should care. Now, let me tell you what my reasoning is not. That's easier than to tell you what my reasoning is. Like I said, it's going to take the whole class to explain the reasoning why we do care. But... Let, let me explain the, what is not the reason why we care. Um, really, 
if anyone chooses to antagonize the Jewish people, history has taught us it doesn't work out well for them. So whether you believe that that's because of some uh, spiritual governing principle or you're just a student of history, uh, it, it doesn't work out well. So I would advise, I would advise anyone against it. Uh, it's a good way to have some quick fame. It's a good for your, like Andy Warhol said, your five minutes of fame, but it doesn't have any longevity to it and it doesn't work out well for individuals or societies that, uh, take up anti-Semitism. So God's going to take care of the Jewish people and Mashiach is coming and there's going to be world peace and everything's going to be good. So that's the reason that we care about Yay and about Kyrie is not because um, we're afraid of what it could do to Jews. I, I, if anything, they should be afraid. But, uh, and, and I would advise them, because I would, I want good for everyone in this world, that they, they should find something else to talk about. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that later, about things that maybe they'd want to start tweeting if they didn't leave, leave Twitter or get suspended from Twitter. I don't know. I, today I can't keep track who's suspended from Twitter and who has left Twitter. So, um, and I, I heard, by the way, there's a guy outside selling Twitter for a reasonable price right now, if you want to be the new owner of Twitter. By the way, I heard it's being sold. At, it's a fire sale. You can, you can get it for a reasonable price. At any rate, um, but we do care about their anti-Semitic statements, but it's not for the reasons that normally people think. God will take care of the Jews. Okay, so let's look into this week's Torah portion. There's a there's an old saying from the first Rebbe of Chabad, Medaf It's Yiddish. We have to live with the time. We have to live with the time means that the weekly Torah portion, every uh, every Shabbos we read another portion from the Torah, and it takes us a whole year to finish the entire cycle. And then we have Simchas Torah where we we rejoice upon completing the entire five books of Moses. So the weekly Torah portion. The Alter Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad, said, is sort of like the current events, the real current events. So if you want to know what's going on in the world and you want to understand what's really happening, you look in the weekly Torah portion. Okay, so this week's Torah portion is Vayera. Very good. Vayera means, and he revealed himself. Who revealed himself? Hashem, God Almighty, revealed himself to whom? He was, uh, yeah, Abraham, Avraham. Yeah, he's now called Avraham. Last week we referred to him as Avram. Um, let's look here, first verse. Vayera Elov Hashem, and Hashem revealed himself to him, to Avraham, Abraham, Mamre, in the fields or the plains of Mamre. What are the fields or the plains of Mamre? Mamre is a guy. It's the name of a guy. So the location is named after the guy. He was a Canaanite landowner. He was a squire. And Abraham at that time was living on his property. 
So it's referred to as such. Rashi, who's the preeminent common commentary on uh, on scripture, Rashi tells us, let's look here, I'm using my Chumash with Rashi. This is what I would use if Kyrie would want to come study with me. We just opened one of these. Okay. No joke. The offer is open. Okay. He may have some time from some free time right now, so I'm just saying. And then we'll go play horse. By the way, you know that Michael Jordan called me? You don't know about that? It was on Meaningful Minute podcast. Well, you can watch. You can Google it. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Anyways, yeah, it's true. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm from Chicago, by the way. Just like Ye is from Chicago. Actually, I think he was born in Atlanta. But I, I also am from Chicago. Okay. Um, so Rashi says, what does he say about Mamre? He says, uh, trying to find it here. In the in the plains of Mamre, who shanosan loy eitza al hamila? Who's Mamre? He's the one who advised Avraham about the mila. Mila means the circumcision. Lefichoch, therefore, niglo olov bechelkoi. Hashem revealed Himself in His, meaning Mamre's property. So this Mamre had a a merit. He was involved. He was on the advisory committee for Avraham's circumcision. And as such, one of the things that he merited as a reward for that involvement is when Hashem revealed himself to Avraham, it took place in Mamre's land. And it is enshrined here in verse for all eternity, telling us very clearly where did this divine revelation take place? On whose property? Mamre's property. Okay. Pretty cool. Um, if you remember last week, I'm just going to flip backwards. I'm not going to literally flip backwards. I meant I'm going to turn the pages backwards. Okay. This is not Cirque du, du Soleil. So no, I'm not going to flip backwards over here. I'm going to turn the pages backwards, which, by the way, if you see me turning the pages, you say, hold on, you're turning them forward. No, because it's a Hebrew book. Aha. Okay. Hebrew goes right to left, not left to right. So uh, I would teach Kyrie about that as well, if he would be interested. Okay. All right. Um, Whatchamacallit. Okay, so I need to go back. Oh. Here we go. Chapter 14, verse 13. All right. Uh, this is last week's Torah portion. I'm not going to give you the whole context, but basically this is right before Avraham, Abraham goes and fights a war to rescue his nephew Light or Lot, who was taken captive. So it says, and the pullet, the really the giant Oig, came and he told Av- Avram, he was called Avram still, not Avraham, uh, the Ivri, the, the Hebrew, and where was he dwelling when, when this occurred, when this story took place? In the property of Mamre, and here he describes his ethnicity, means the Amorite. Amorite is an ancient Canaanite nation. Well, as I mentioned, he's a Canaanite. 
Achi Eshkel Achi Oner, who is the brother of Eshkel, that's another name, and Oner, that's a third name, the Haim, and they all collectively, Mamre and Eshkel and Oner, they are Bale Bris Avram. Bale Bris Avram. What does Bale Bris Avram mean? Well, it means the people who shared in a contract. Bris means a contract uh, with Avram. And Rashi, going to Rashi again, gives a couple of explanations. He says, Bali Bris Avram, Shekorsu Ime Bris. One explanation means they made a contract with him. They had a treaty. They had a treaty. An, al- an alliance. So Avram, Abraham, had an alliance with these three Canaanite squires, Anur, Eshkel, and Mamre. But then Rashi says, and sometimes he does, very often he does this, he gives another explanation, and he says, alternatively, they gave him advice, al Hamila, about the circumcision, like, like it's explained elsewhere. Bris can mean a contract, but also bris can mean the contract, the contract between God and Abraham and his descendants. The circumcision is called bris, bris mila. Mila means circumcision, bris means a covenant or a contract. You see, I'm from Chicago, I say covenant. In New York, you say covenant. Cannot wrap my mouth, mouth around that. Okay. I stopped saying roof because my kids were laughing. I say roof, but I can't say covenant. I say covenant. I can't say Florida or orange either. I say Florida, and I say orange. Florida oranges. At any rate, um, what was I talking about? I got Florida oranges. Oh, covenant. Yeah, not a covenant, a covenant. Yes. So, um, bris could mean a covenant. So, bale bris avram. What does it mean when... The scripture refers to these three Canaanites as the Bale Bris Avram. So either it means they had a covenant with him, or, and it's not mutually exclusive, they could both be true, they were involved in his covenant with God. Rashi says, and he says, I, I got this from another source, specifically the other source, by the way, is the Medrash Tanchuma. And uh, the Medrash Tanchuma says more specifically that when Avraham, Abraham, was about to do, when he's about to carry out the circumcision, he asked the advice from Oner, Ashkel, and Mamre. In fact, the Madrash tells us even more specifically what advice each one of them gave. It says specifically, Oner told Abraham, well, you may be making yourself vulnerable to attack, because if you do this surgery, maybe the other uh, kings in this area will take advantage of that and attack you. So he told him, maybe it's not such a great idea. Uh, Ashkoil told him, well, you're an old man. You're very old. You're 99 years old. Maybe it's not such a smart move. And Mamre was the one who told him, you know what? God told you to do it. Go for it. He said, go for it. So Mamre is sort of the hero here. Um, and as we know from the first week from the first, I'm sorry, first, first verse of this week's Torah reading, when God revealed himself to Abraham, which is connected to the circumcision. Uh, let me just explain that. Three days after the circumcision, the third day is the day, I went to the uh, oral surgeon today, 
because my tooth's been hurting. I got a, I got a drill and fill two weeks ago and it just, it didn't subside. So I went to the oral surgeon today. So she was like, well, you got to speak tonight. You got to give a class tonight. I don't think we should do the extraction. That means pull the tooth. I don't think we should pull the tooth, uh, today because you won't be able to give the class. She said, remember also, you know, the third day is the worst pain. I said, I know that's what this week's portion says that the third day so I figured out probably Thursday will be the best day. We'll, we'll find out. At any rate, so the third day after uh, procedures, the, the most painful day, so the third day after Abraham did the circumcision, that's when God revealed himself to him, performing the mitzvah of visiting the sick. God visited the sick. Um, he visited uh, Abraham. And uh, so when that revelation that divine revelation took place. The Torah tells us for all eternity, where did it take place? In the fields of Mamre. Why? Because Mamre was involved in the decision-making process, and he voted yay. Not Kanye, but he voted yay, as opposed to nay. You should, yes, you should do the brismila, you should do the circumcision. Okay. So far, so good? You all following? Okay, so I'm going to have a little bit of my seltzer. I made a blessing earlier. I mean, how could he give advice not even knowing? Nobody knew. Nobody knew. It was, a, right. it was an unknown thing. Yeah. Well, I have a bigger question. I have a much bigger question. Not how could... Yeah, okay, well... Don't be so impressed. I was, <laughs> I didn't think of it on my own, by the way. Okay. But here's the bigger question. When later on in this very same Torah reading, God is going to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham starts arguing, no, don't do it. Give them another chance. And he starts arguing. I mean, that's a pretty big deal, arguing with God. God tells you, I already decided I'm going to wipe them out. And Abraham's like, is there anything we can do? Can we, can we get a plea deal over here? He's trying. He's trying. Arguing with God, that's a big deal. Uh, Abraham did that unilaterally. He did not ask anyone, oh, you think I should do that? I'll tell you even more. Also, in this week's Torah portion, at the end of the Torah portion, God tells Abraham, sacrifice your beloved, only child, Isaac. We don't see that Abraham went and consulted on their Eshkel and Mamre about that. So there were pretty big things that Abraham did, and he did not ask anyone's advice. But when it comes to the circumcision, all of a sudden we find that there was this whole city council meeting, and he was discussing with on their Eshkel and Mamre, whether or not he should do it. And then not only we find that Abraham consulted with them, but that Mamre's vote, yeah, yeah, go for it, apparently was important enough that in God's word, in the Bible itself, when it tells us about the revelation, a revelation of God Almighty to Abraham, it puts Mamre's name right there in that verse. So it was a big deal. It was a big deal that Mamre advised him. So the question is, why in the world did Abraham need to get this advice? Why was this advice important? What, why was it necessary? In other words, I'll ask you another way. You think Abraham would, would have not done it 
if he couldn't get any backing, if he couldn't get people to, to co-sign? You think you would have told God, I'm sorry, it's just not very popular right now. He would have done it anyway. So why did he try to get buy-in first from these uh, local Canaanite guys? A very important question. So I'm going to tell you a story. The story is about, remember I mentioned you, the Yiddish phrase, which means we have to live with the times. And I told you who said that. The Alter Rebbe, we call him the Alter Rebbe, whose uh, his name was Rav Schneer Zalman of Leadi, and he was the first Rebbe of Chabad, the Chabad school of Hasidism. And uh, he was arrested, he was imprisoned, and he was actually charged with the capital crime of treason. And I'm not going to get into a whole story now, an explanation about what happened there, but he was held in prison for... Uh, 53 days on uh, charges of treason. The punishment would have been death, would have been execution. And uh, he was, he, well, he lived in the Russian Empire, and the capital of the Russian Empire at that time was what we call Petersburg in Yiddish, or Petersburg. So he was brought, he lived in White Russia, Belarus, and he, he, he was brought to, um, to uh, Petersburg, Petersburg, and he was kept in the prison there. The way it worked, there's a river in Petersburg called the Neva River. And uh, the prison was, one, was on one side of the Neva, and the courthouse was on the other side. So every day, they used to pick him up in a ferry boat, and they would bring him from the prison to the courthouse to be interrogated. And then they would, at night, after the interrogation, they would bring him back to the prison. So he would go across that, the Neva River twice a day. The story is, we're talking about the 1790s. Um, he's coming back from, an, from a day of interrogation. He's on that boat. And uh, there's a mitzvah, one of the 613 commandments of the Torah, is to sanctify the new moon. That means once every month after the moon has completely waned, when it starts to reappear, when you have the new moon, that little brand new sliver, so there's a, there's a mitzvah, there's a divine commandment to bless and to thank God for having given us the moon. And you recite this prayer, it's a prayer, and you recite this while in, while the moon is in view. So it's done at night. Um, but I just can't resist, I gotta just pause for a second. You know the Helm joke, right? Everyone knows Helm. Helm, if you're watching online, Helm is a city that we always mock as being full of fools, foolish people. Okay. So anyways, people, the people in Helm weren't just fools, because it's not, there's nothing wrong with being a fool, but, they were foolish and they thought they were smart. They would always philosophize and that's what, that's when they would say really foolish things. So one time the people of Helm had a, a deliberation and they said, what's more important, the sun or the moon? And in the end they concluded that it was the moon that was more important because the sun shines during the daytime when it's bright out already. Okay. At any rate, that's a Helm story. Um, so 
you make this blessing, recite the, the, this blessing while you can see the moon. So you do it at night and you do it outside. And uh, preferably you do it standing still. The Alter Rebbe was on a boat. The boat was going across the river. He told the captain of the boat, who was not Jewish, to stop the boat. And the captain said, no, I'm not stopping for you. So the Alter Rebbe told him, if you don't want to stop it, I can stop it myself. Okay, whatever. The Alter Rebbe did whatever he did, and the boat stopped. The captain could not get the boat to move. So he saw there's something otherworldly happening here. Um, and he said to the Alter Rebbe, you know, I got a job to do. Can you please release the boat? So the Alter Rebbe said, okay, no problem. And he released the boat. The boat went a little longer. And uh, the Alter Rebbe says to the captain, could you please stop the boat? And he said, I told you already, I got a job. I'm not stopping the boat. So the Alter Rebbe said, you know, I could stop it myself. And he did it again. Whatever he did, whatever powers he used, the Al-Tarebbe stopped the boat. He made the boat stop. The boat would not move. And so the captain pleaded with him, with him again, please release the boat. They went back and forth like this twice. The third time, finally, the, 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 the captain says to the Al-Tarebbe, okay, I see you really want this boat stopped. I'll stop it, but I want something. And he was very smart, this captain. He said, I see that you're a holy man. I want your blessing. He said, okay, I'll, I bless you. He said, no, I want it in writing. He's a smart guy. He said, I want your blessing in writing. He brought him pen and paper. The Altarebbe wrote him a blessing in writing, and he gave it to him. Then the captain stopped the boat. Then the Alter Rebbe recited the prayers sanctifying the new moon. After he'd finished the ceremony, it takes a few minutes, not a long ceremony. Then the Alter Rebbe said, I'm finished. And the, the captain continued to uh, steer the boat across the Neva River. So the Alter Rebbe's descendant, he was the first Rebbe of Chabad, so his descendant, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad. Rabbi Yesef Yitzchok of Lubavitch said, I heard that story since I was a kid, and I never understood why it had to happen that way. If the Alter Rebbe was capable of stopping the boat through whatever means he employed, why was it so important to get the, the boat captain to do it manually. And uh, so the sixth Rebbe said, it was only when I became older and I started learning Hasidic mystical teachings that it made sense to me. The soul comes to the physical world to refine the physical world. <laughs> if the soul wanted to have a purely spiritual relationship with God, it would have remained in heaven. Soul comes down here because by being embodied and performing what we call mitzvahs, divine commandments that require the use of your body, the mitzvahs are actions. They're not meditations, they're actions. So they, you have to physically do the mitzvahs. You have to get up 
and perform the act. Even things that you say, you have to physically say, you have to produce the speech with your, with your, your physical organs of speech. So the soul comes into the world to be engaged with the body and also with the, the, the physical environment around you. Because when you do a mitzvah, it's not just your body that you're using, but it's all the resources that you consumed that give you the energy and the ability to perform the mitzvah. Many mitzvahs require that you actually procure different physical objects in order to perform them. So there's a lot of physicality in these, in these commandments being performed. And the reason is because the soul came to the world to refine the world. And you can only refine the world, meaning you can only infuse spirituality into the physicality if you engage the physicality. If you avoid physicality and you have a purely spiritual relationship with God while embodied, then you could, you might as well have stayed up there. You got to come down here and engage the physical world, which means one of the things it means is we really don't like to use miracles because miracles sidestep or circumvent the natural order, and then you're not really engaging the physical world, and the impact then is sort of uh, squandered, or the potential for impact on the physical world is squandered. So the sixth Rebbe said, after I grew older and I learned more of the Hasidic mystical teachings, it made perfect sense to me, the Alter Rebbe did not want to perform this mitzvah through miraculous means. It was very important to him that the captain of the boat, who was a non-Jew, meaning he was not a believer, he, he was not a co-religionist, he himself did not value that ritual, but that through his free will should choose and agree, all right, I will do it in a natural way. Why? Because without that, the Al-Tarebbe could have performed the mitzvah, but the impact that the mitzvah has on the physical world would have been lacking, to some extent. So, the idea of a Jew needing to get buy-in from a non-Jew to say, yeah, okay, fine, I'll let you do your mitzvah. It's not because, certainly in the Alter Rebbe's case, he needed permission from the non-Jew. He could have done it without permission, without consent. He could have just done it. But the purpose of embodiment is that we do engage the world, which includes humanity around us. And therefore, buy-in is important. You know what buy-in means? It means that other people see what you're doing and they're like, I get that. I support that. That is important. It has to do with the whole reason that the soul came to the world. The soul came to the world to affect the world. Affecting the world means spreading a message that other human beings are able to grasp and say, oh, I get it. That's an important thing. So a non-Jew can say, all right, I don't have to become Jewish, I don't have to do your ritual, but I get why you need to do it, and I want to help you do it. I'll tell you even more, that when the Al-Tarebbe was finally released, how many days was he imprisoned? Excellent, you guys have good retention. So 53 days. After he was released, 
he wrote a letter to his colleague, Rav Levi Yitzchak Berdichever, and he said that the biggest deal to him about his freedom, obviously being free, but you know, the best way to, to go free from prison is never to go in in the first place. But he was saying he had gained something. Something positive had come about through the imprisonment that wouldn't have taken place if he hadn't been imprisoned. So he wrote, the Alter Rebbe wrote to Levi Yitzchak and he said that because of the experience of the interrogation for 53 days and being forced to interact with uh, the non-Jewish government, so they asked him a lot of questions about his position and his beliefs and his, his teachings. And he said, when I left, they all became my adherents, like they supported me. Not only they, they said, okay, we have, we, we're not going to convict you of treason. Not only do we see you're innocent of those charges, but we see you're a good person, you have good beliefs, and you should continue teaching your beliefs. And the Al-Tarebbe felt that that justified the entire ordeal. Like, it was worth that outcome. It was worth going through whatever he he went through in order to come to that outcome. In other words, it is a big deal when the non-Jewish world gets it and they say, I get it. We don't have to become Jewish. See, that's very important in Judaism. We don't believe non-Jews have to become Jewish. But yes, we do want them to understand and be sympathetic to and support and, and encourage Jews to practice Judaism. And why do we want that? Not because we need their permission. Not because we're afraid. Because honestly, we have God to rely on. Okay, we have God to rely on. But because, like I said, the whole purpose of the soul coming into this world is to affect the world. And part of affecting the world means PR. PR in public relations. It means that other people have to look at what you're doing and they have to buy in. They have to say, I get it. That's a good thing. You keep it up, Jews. Keep doing it. That's great. I like your mission. Again, not because we need their permission, but because part of coming into the world is to affect the world, and part of affecting the world means to get human beings to understand what we're all about, to understand our purpose, to understand that we're here to make this physical realm holier than heaven. That really is our goal. World peace, that's our goal. That's what our prophets spoke about millennia ago. That's really what we want. We want peace for everyone. We want prosperity for everyone. That is our goal. Yes. How do we believe we bring that about? Through adhering to our religious precepts. We believe that when we keep our mitzvahs, it's not just good for us spiritually. Oh, we're going to go to heaven, which is selfish if that's all you're doing it for. No. We believe that when we do our mitzvahs, we are literally refining this world and making the physical world a more spiritual place for everyone to the benefit of all humanity. And we want humanity to get that. And especially powerful, influential people. I would love if Kanye and Kyrie would understand the Jewish mission here in the world and why it's good for them and why it's good for humanity and why it's good for the world. Of course, because part of the reason that our souls came to the world is to communicate that message. And it's sad when there is a portion of humanity that doesn't grasp that message. So, going back to our question, why did Avraham, Abraham, specifically consult with Honor, Eshkel, and Mamre before the circumcision? 
and not before he did other things that were a bigger deal, perhaps bigger deals, is because you only have one chance to do the circumcision. It's a one-shot deal. And the purpose of the circumcision is, no pun intended, to leave a mark. God refers to the circumcision as his contract that he signed in our flesh. In other words, it is not just a spiritual contract. There's a physical sign of the contract. It's supposed to physically affect us to the point where it transforms the body. It's supposed to be physical. Abraham could only do that once. He wanted that when he does that act, and he has one shot at it, that not only is he affecting his own body by performing that procedure, but that he has buy-in from the non-Jews around him, and they're cheering him on, and they're like, yeah, this is a good thing. Because when they are supportive of it, when they understand it, and they like it, and they get it, so now his circumcision is not just leaving a mark on his own body, it's leaving a mark on the people around him. It's having an impact on his environment. So that's why it was so important. And in fact, it worked. It worked. How do we know what worked? Abraham wanted that this act of obedience to God, which he would have done even without the buy-in of his friends, but he wanted that it should have a greater impact, meaning it should affect the thinking of the non-Jews around him, and it should affect the world around him, and, and indeed, that happened. How do we know it happened? Because what we read, the first verse of this week's Torah portion, that Hashem revealed himself to Abraham in the plains of Mamre. In other words, the revelation didn't just take, it could have taken place in a subjective way. It could have taken place, only Abraham experienced it. Nobody else saw it. Nobody else knew about it. The fact that it's described as having a physical location, that the revelation didn't take place in Abraham's mind. The revelation took place in the fields of Mamre. That was a reciprocal or a, 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 that was the outer manifestation of what Abraham had engineered by making sure the people around him were consulted and bought in and understood it. So it worked. Abraham's tactic worked. He did something that could have just been for his own personal refinement. And instead, he expanded it and made it that it not only refined him and his body, but it refined his environment and the thinking of the people around him until the, until the extent that when that revelation took place, it was an objective occurrence that every bystander could perceive. And that's, what, that's what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. Again, Mashiach, the Messianic era that we believe in, is not that an elect few will have a subjective enlightenment that no one else will be privy to. Or that they'll graduate to some heavenly plane that no one else can access. No, we believe that the revelation of godliness will take place here on this earth. Like the prophet says, of all flesh will see together. It will be objective. It will be empirical. You will be able to see it with your physical eyes. That's what we believe in. And the way to make that happen, the commensurate task that will manifest in an objective revelation of godliness in the world is 
when we serve God in that manner, where we don't just do it in a way where we get it, we appreciate it. No, we try to the greatest extent possible to get other people around us to get it and appreciate it as well. Now, if they don't get it and they don't appreciate it, we're going to do it anyway because it's between us and God. But it's much better, meaning it has a more refining effect on the universe when people around us do get it. Now, I want to talk a little bit practically for a moment about how to implement this. How can we get the world to buy in and say that Jews practicing Judaism is good for the world? It occurred to me, um, everything is sampling today. What do I mean by that? I mean, discourse. I'm not talking about music production. I'm talking about discourse. The way people talk today, everything is sampling. Everything's a retweet. That movie that Kyrie posted a link to, he said, I think he even said, I didn't even see it. Or, or uh, at least he said, I didn't make it. I just reposted it. A repost, a retweet. I posted the link. There's something that has to be acknowledged. Maybe, just maybe, there are no more truly original ideas. You know, in Torah itself, there were eras of Torah teachings. There were the, the, the most creative era was the era of when the Talmud was compiled. And those were true geniuses. And then you had the Rishonim, the medieval scholars, who would take the works of the Tanoyim Amarayim of the Talmud, Mishnah and the Talmud, and they would comment on them. That the, the, the medieval scholars, the Rishonim, they would do commentary. So they would basically take, oh, like Rashi. Rashi is a perfect example, case in point. Taking the classic works and commenting on them. And then there was like another layer of commentary. You have the Achroinim, the later sages. And they came and they commented on how the Rishonim commented on the classic texts. And then we finally reached a point where really there's nothing novel coming out. I heard even somebody suggest that the era of Torah scholarship that we're in right now, from a perspective of history, could rightfully be referred to as the Malaktim. You had the Rishonim, you had the Acharonim, now we have the Malaktim. Malaktim means the compilers. All that's left to do is to compile. All that's left to do is dig in the crates and to sample. Which means, find something that somebody already said, Find a video someone already uploaded to YouTube and just retweet it, post it on social media, text it out to your friends. That's the era we're in. We have to embrace that. And that's where the power is. You need to post. You need to post right now. You need to pull out your phone right now and you have to take a picture, a selfie while you're sitting in class. And say, I'm at my weekly Torah class. You have to put it out there. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just tell you one more thing, and that is, at the very end of this week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayero, like we mentioned, this week's Torah portion, at the very, very end, there's a genealogy. It's the genealogy that leads up to the birth of Rebecca, Rivka. And it says a bunch of names of people we never hear of again. Who are these people? 
So I want to tell you a secret. The end, the last word of this Torah portion, the Torah portion that begins with Vayera Elov Hashem, the Torah portion that begins with the statement, God revealed himself to Abraham in the portion belonging to the Canaanite squire Mamre. That's the opening of the Torah portion. The end of the Torah portion is the word or the name, the proper noun, Macha, Mem, Ayin, Chof, Hey. It's a name, a name of a person you never hear of again. But it's an acronym. Every letter of that word spells out or stands for the initials of another letter. Melech al kol ha'aretz. King over the entire world. And by the way, it's not just the last word of this week's Torah portion. It's the last word of the Torah portion that we read on Rosh Hashanah on the new year. And the message is, that the ultimate goal is that God should not only be our king, but he should be Melech al-Kol Ha'aretz, king of the entire world. And the word Aretz, which literally means land, means in, dis- in contradistinction to heaven. God shouldn't just be the God in heaven, an abstract God, but God of the world. God of the world means that the entire population of earth buys into this. They see God. They see the goodness. They're part of it. They're contributing to it. And you know what happens? So what the prophet told us, that in that day, when Mashiach finally comes, the world is perfected, the knowledge of God will cover the earth like water cover, covers the ocean bed. Now, if you read that when it was said 3,000 years ago, I don't know how you would even imagine that. The knowledge of God covering the world like water covers the ocean bed. But today, it's very simple. Get on your device, learn how to write hashtags, post, upload, just flood the internet with the knowledge of God so that that becomes what's out there And I promise you, Kanye, Kyrie, and everyone else is using the same internet that you're using. They're using the same platforms that you're using. We have to flood the world with spiritual knowledge for the benefit of the world. Okay, all right, good night.